Hi, my name is Kate Mills. I'm a GYN oncologist from the University of Chicago, and I'm a member of the Education Committee for the SGO. We are part of the Clinical Trials Subcommittee, and we are happy to be here to present the updates and highlights from Winter NRG Oncology, who are members of the GYN's various subcommittees as vice chairpersons. Thanks so much for having us. I'm really excited to be here today. This is Joyce Liu. I am a medical oncologist who specializes in GYN cancer and the vice chair of the ovarian subcommittee at energy. Hi, I'm very excited and thrilled to be here also. I'm Jyothi Mayadev and the Vice Chair of the Cervical Cancer and Vulvar Subcommittee. I'm a radiation oncologist at UCSD and specialize mostly in cervical cancer outcomes, awareness, and brachytherapy. Happy to be here. This is Ann Klopp. I'm a radiation oncologist at MD Anderson focused on GYN cancers, and I'm the co-chair of the Corpus Committee at Energy. Hi, and I'm Jubilee Brown. I'm a GYN oncologist and the vice chair of rare tumor. I practice GYN oncology at Levine Cancer Institute at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you so much for being here today. So we're going to start just by hitting off some of the highlights from the various subcommittees. So we'll go ahead and start with ovarian cancer this year. I think in the summer, we actually started with uterine cancer. So we're going to start with ovary this year. So Dr. Liu, can you give us any specific highlights, themes, anything that you think the membership should know that's coming forth from the ovarian subcommittee? I think it's a really exciting time in ovary from our subcommittee meeting, we didn't have specific uh, new data to present this uh, this meeting, but uh, as many people may know, there's been a new approval in the ovarian cancer space with uh, the first antibody drug conjugate that's been approved for ovarian cancer. This is uh, mirvituximab sorbitansine. It targets folate receptor alpha and was approved off of the strength of the Soraya study, which was a single arm study in women with folate receptor alpha expressed ovarian cancer who had had three or fewer prior lines of therapy and had platinum-resistant disease. So I think this represents a really exciting step forward for ovarian cancer. We do have two large phase three studies, uh, phase two, three studies, GY005 and GY009 that completed accrual in the past couple of years. And we're anticipating that hopefully in the near future, we're going to see the final results for both of these studies come to us and then be presented to the community at large. It's been a very exciting time in the development. It did seem like at NRG that there are a lot of things coming out of the ovarian space that should really, I hope, change the future for a lot of our patients who are looking for options. What are some of the trials from the ovarian cancer space that members of the SGO should be looking at to maybe open or push strongly um, at their various locations? Yeah, we have some really interesting trials so the Energy GY019 trial has been a very exciting potential step forward in low-grade serous ovarian cancer. It's been open for a few years. It's been accruing quite well. I think it really highlights that we can accrue very well to trials with low-grade serous ovarian cancer. And this is in women with newly diagnosed low-grade serous ovarian cancer, randomizing them to receive either the combination of chemotherapy followed by hormonal therapy versus hormonal therapy alone. I think that 
you know, we're very interested to see these results. I think, you know, we've certainly seen that these low-grade serous ovarian cancers may not be as responsive to chemotherapy and the potential that we could treat them just as effectively with hormonal therapy is certainly something that could be very exciting. Another trial that has just really opened in ovary is our Energy GY029 trial, which is looking at the combination of PI3 kinase inhibition together with PARP inhibition in patients who have received prior PARP inhibitor therapy. There's some really nice data that's been presented and uh, led by Dr. Uh, Panos Constantinopoulos, who is the PI of this trial, showing that this combination can overcome PARP inhibitor resistance. And so GY029 is a randomized phase two study that looks at this combination compared to investigators' choice chemotherapy in patients with platinum-resistant ovarian cancer who have received prior PARP inhibitor. And we think this will be a really exciting opportunity and a big step forward uh, to think about all of our patients who have received PARP inhibitor. And the question is, where do we go next? I think that's a common theme. I know we talk about it at our tumor board here at the University of Chicago, not infrequently. What shall we do now? So understanding how to sequence these medications, of course, I think is a question on a lot of people's minds. And I think as a, kind of as a segue, there are a lot of trials that are available in the ovarian cancer space, which is fantastic. Some of our membership have vocalized that it's a little bit hard sometimes to prioritize or, you know, maybe if they don't have the same, you know, support staff as they would like, and it takes a long time to get studies open. Are there any studies currently available now that you maybe would expect to be open for a long enough time that, you know, they won't put all this effort in and then have like two weeks to get a patient on study and feel like they missed their chance? I'm anticipating GY019, this low-grade serous ovarian cancer study, will be open for a while longer. It is a relatively uncommon tumor, and this is a large phase three study for 450 patients. So I think that this is a study I anticipate will be available and an opportunity for sites and for our patients um, for a while still. Energy GY029 is not a small study either. It's uh, almost 100 patients, and this this study has just opened. So this is a real opportunity for sites to think about patients with platinum-resistant ovarian cancer who have received prior PARP. If they have a lot of uh, patients who are fit into that category, I think this is a real opportunity right now as well. That's fantastic. Do you have any advice for maybe new investigators or folks who are hoping to maybe submit a concept, but they feel very overwhelmed about climbing that summit? It is, it is definitely a summit to be climbed. I would say that definitely don't be shy. You know, these concepts, we, we want ideas from everyone. There's no monopoly on good ideas. And so, you know, I think that the things I, I encourage people to do, come and talk to us. If you've got an idea, you know, come to talk to me or you can come to speak with Dr. Moore. We're very excited to hear. We will help give you some guidance, some thoughts. Um, and think about how it would potentially be shaped to come to the committee. Very excited to see everything. Thanks. I know that membership is always looking for tips and tricks, so appreciate your insight. And then maybe one last question in terms of ovarian cancer trials. Another question is how to screen efficiently. Um, do you have any thoughts uh, maybe from your own institution or that have been discussed at the committee level to try to help people navigate, especially if they have a number of trials open, how to prioritize and get patients on study and not just sitting in that, you know, 
forever waiting screening phase? It's a real sort of challenge sometimes, depending upon, you know, when you're seeing a patient, you're trying to decide which trials to to offer them or to consider for them. I think a couple of tips that I think about is if you have multiple trials in the same space institutionally, oftentimes we'll think about prioritizing them. So it's a little bit easier to think about, okay, this is going to be our highest priority trial. And then, you know, sort of go from there. The other thing I think about is how many lines of therapy they've had. And so, you know, to really think about, okay, these are my trials for two lines of therapy. Here's three, here's four. And really to have that list available um, so that you can move them forward, can think through those trials quickly and be able to offer them. I like to say this, uh, one of my colleagues, Dave O'Malley, talks about this all the time in the platinum-resistant ovarian space. You don't have to have just one trial. We know, unfortunately, that, you know, these patients, their cancers can be resistant and, you know, they can develop resistance. And so we can have multiple trials in the platinum-resistant ovarian cancer space and go from one. And if patients progress on that, actually have the next one teed up sort of as an idea, okay, you know, we can move from one trial and then potentially to the next if it's needed. And so I think that's another tip I would think about for sites to sort of think about the sequencing of, you know, how you would want patients to be able to enroll to trials. Those are fantastic tips. And hopefully the membership can apply some of them and increase their enrollment to the ovarian cancer trials that we have available through the NRG. So next, we're going to move on to the cervix and vulva committee. We've got Dr. Maya Dev here with us today. Just a couple of things that we'd like to know about the cervix space and vulva. Uh, What were some of the highlights from this committee at the winter NRG meeting? Thanks, Dr. Mills. We had a great meeting at NRG with the the cervix and and vulva subcommittee. Initially, we had actually Dr. Mark Einstein really give us an update on the role of HPV in cervical cancer. We know that HPV is the main cause of cervical cancer and efforts that he's involved with in his lab and across the globe, um, looking at the uh, further understanding of immune correlates with cervical cancer, looking at even pre-invasive cancer. So CIN2 and 3 in efforts to try to prevent CIN2 and 3 to become invasive carcinoma. That was really great. And we were very indebted to him for his educational talk. And, you know, we talked a lot at the Cervical Cancer Committee about the shifting landscape of locally advanced cervical cancer. I mean, several of us have been watching these large randomized prospective trials report out, as many of us know, the Outback trial run by the ANZ GOG, as well as the GOG and legacy RTOG, had a a very eloquent trial looking at patients uh, with locally advanced cervical cancer, albeit, you know, the risk profile was a little lower um, than we think of with high-risk disease. So, for example, periodic node patients were not permitted on that trial, but it was reported at ASCO 2021, uh, you know, showing no difference in terms of outback chemotherapy to standard chemoradiation. Um, We're anticipating those results to come out in a full manuscript form, hopefully within the next couple of months, definitely within the year. Other trials that we talked about that have recently closed to successful approval in our committee is GY17. That was presented by myself at SGO last year, looking at the sequencing of immunotherapy and chemoradiation in locally advanced cervical cancer that specifically looked at atezolizumab given as one dose prior to chemoradiation and then two doses with chemoradiation versus, you know, all three doses with the start of chemoradiation. And as a plug to SGO this spring in 2023, 
uh, Dr. Zamarin will be presenting a lot of the updated correlates with our findings of TC clonality and looking at some of the immune microenvironment in terms of sequencing with chemo radiation. And so we're very excited about that to be presented at the SGO as a plenary session. In terms of other trials that have recently completed accrual and we're just waiting for uh, the results to mature is RTOG 0724. That looked at the postoperative space in patients with high risk cervical cancer after they've had a hysterectomy and a, and a lymph node dissection. And so these are patients who have kind of the traditional, we think of as the Peters criteria. So patients with uh, positive margins, positive parametria, positive lymph nodes, randomized to radiation and essentially chemo radiation versus chemo radiation followed by more chemotherapy. Um, and doctors Jingren and Anita Jingren and Heidi Gray are the PIs on that trial. And we've uh, talked to statistics and the trial results will mature by this summer. So we're hoping to see that come out for the public, you know, within 2024 or so. GOG0263 is another postoperative trial that looked at women with intermediate risk factors. So the patients who were more in like the, the traditional set list criteria. Dr. Sam Yang uh, ran that with a lot of support from the KGOG in terms of accrual. And that uh, should be a mature in the next year. So again, looking forward to those results. Dr. Neil Horowitz will present a GOG 0729, which looked at local advanced vulvar cancer at SGO this year. And that was a trial that was a prospective trial looking at uh, the intensification of both chemotherapy and technologically advanced radiation. So that looked at patients with locally advanced node positive vulvar carcinoma, treating them with cisplatin, gemcitabine, radiation therapy. And there was a dose escalation with the radiation therapy, and it was given with IMRT. So these are all things we're very excited about. Um, in addition to that, several of us on the committee, and thanks to everyone in the audience who put patients on GY006, this is our large randomized phase three registration trial, looking at patients with locally advanced cervical cancer and it randomized these patients to chemoradiation versus chemoradiation and triapine. And so uh, that is uh, very exciting. It is close to accrual in September 2022. And looking forward to those results um, as an interim analysis was actually performed at the NRG winter meeting. Those results uh, should come out to the public hopefully soon this year. So we have a lot of things going on in the cervical cancer landscape. And luckily, a lot of reports that will come out uh, to everyone that will help us continue to brainstorm, you know, how we can better treat patients. So thank you, Dr. Mills. Follow up to that. Are there any trials ongoing that you'd like to specifically highlight to the membership priorities for them to enroll to? Yeah, right now we have, uh, led by Dr. Uh, Brian Slomovich uh, and, and a collaboration with our European colleagues, NRG GY024, and that was the groin sentinel lymph node in vulvar cancer three. And it was, it's a prospective phase two treatment trial looking at patients in terms of sentinel nodes and vulvar carcinoma. So we're very excited about that. Patients can enroll through the NRG and we're looking forward to putting patients on that trial. There are three centers that have enrolled you know, patients so far. So that's very available. There's a U.S. appendix. And of course, they can contact either myself, Dr. Trey Lee, or uh, Brian Slomovich, or Lillian Guillen. She's also helping with that trial. 
you know, as we've been talking during this uh, podcast, I think there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, how you prioritize the opening of trials. But I think historically, a lot of folks have felt like they've struggled to enroll patients onto cervical and vulvar studies. Do you have any thoughts specifically related to enrollment with cervix and vulvar patients? I think there are several centers that see a lot of these patients and we do have hurdles to enrollment and we want to acknowledge those. I mean, sometimes our patients have a lot of social pressures or socioeconomic pressures that make it difficult for them to enroll on a clinical trial. Say, for example, you know, if there's a study arm that where they would need more infusions or uh, they need to be at a certain place, you know, for their radiation therapy. And so we, we definitely acknowledge these, these hurdles. I, I think, you know, each center has their own navigation of, of how they can navigate through the clinical trials process. I think a lot of us at our institutions have also faced staff shortages through the CTO after COVID for various reasons. And this has also affected our accrual. And so one of the things we do at UCSD is we do have a patient navigator and we have a large Hispanic population, particularly those who have cervical cancer. About half of our patients who are going to get radiation at UCSD are Latino and it's an often Spanish speaking only. And so we have a peer navigator who is really understanding the community and is able to navigate them through some of the processes, uh, including some reluctance or suspicion regarding clinical trials. And that definitely is real and palpable. And I'm sure a lot of institutions have tips, hoping that everyone can kind of share those together. It does seem like a number of institutions have started to use a peer navigator as a mechanism for enrollment, especially as you highlight for, for maybe minorities that don't feel necessarily trusting of the system or trusting of the of the clinical trials um, platform. And then do you have any thoughts for, you know, young investigators or new investigators with an idea, anything particularly successful in the cervix and vulvar subcommittee for those folks who want to get involved? I mean, we're always trying to brainstorm new ideas. I think, you know, with locally advanced cervical cancer, there is a lot of shifting landscapes. I mean, as several of us know, also um, who are involved with the CALID trial, that was a prospective randomized phase three double-blind placebo-controlled trial that looked at patients with locally advanced cervical cancer. If patients had a, a T2, they had to be node positive. I mean, you could have, patients could be enrolled if they were T3, T4, and node negative. It also included patients with periodic nodal disease and stratified based on risk profiles in regions of the world. And that was a randomization between chemoradiation and dervalumab, followed by dervalumab for 24 months versus placebo. And the press release um, earlier this year highlighted no difference in terms of the intent to treat population. But the two-year disease-free survivals for the entire cohort, again, are about 67% or so. So we know that. We need to improve upon these outcomes. I think biomarker studies are always needed. Imaging molecular studies are are also very fascinating and exciting in this space because we really need to, as a committee and as a community of researchers and clinicians, try to hone in and enrich our patient populations on clinical trials 
so that we can truly self-select those patients that are going to benefit uh, beyond chemoradiation therapies. So I think biomarker studies are very interesting. You know, in this space, like Dr. Liu said, uh, we do have solicitations that come out and junior investigators can contact myself or Dr. Leith and we could brainstorm together. We did have it, two concepts on vulvar cancer that were shared at the winter meeting at NRG uh, and there was enthusiasm from the committee. So I think all of us see these patients and it's just, what's the optimal sequence? How do we sequence this with chemoradiation in a locally advanced space? Um, you know, is it going to be before? Is it is it after? You know, what what's the effect of radiation with immunotherapy? You know, perhaps maybe we've seen these large trials been reported also in the head and neck space that perhaps combining IO with radiation may be something that, you know, we need to further investigate in terms of, you know, it didn't work in a lot of these randomized trials. So we have to really look at what's priming the immune system. Radiation does release tumor-associated antigens, and but it also causes, you know, a dampening of the overall quantification of T-cells. So there's just a lot going on and a lot, a lot we need to think about in terms of the best trial options. I think that's great advice for folks who are trying to get involved. Thank you so much. Dr. Klopp, what would you say were some of the major trial highlights or results from uterine corpus that maybe the membership would be most interested in learning about from Winter Energy? There's um, been uh, some exciting results coming out of um, endometrial cancer around understanding the molecular subtypes of endometrial cancer. And so the NRG has really been focused on figuring out how to implement those findings. Personally, um, a study that I've been excited about reporting out on is uh, the 238 trial. This was a study for patients with locally recurrent endometrial cancer that were treated with radiation with or without chemotherapy. And a lot of um, places around the country had adopted the use of chemotherapy uh, based on other disease sites where we found that to be really beneficial. And interestingly, the study found that the outcomes were the same, whether patients were treated with radiation or chemotherapy. So I think, although not what we anticipated, really impactful. Another take-home message for me for that trial uh, is, is how excellent the outcomes are for patients that are treated curatively with radiation for locally recurrent endometrial cancers. About 70% of patients um, were disease-free two years afterwards. So I think it's really to me as a radiation oncologist, an important example of how those patients have excellent outcomes. And it's really important to treat them separately and identify them. Totally. I mean, I do think there's always this kind of back and forth thing, especially in the uterine corpus side of things with the roles of radiation and chemo and how to decide. So um, perhaps, you know, this trial just will continue to fuel the need for more trials to clarify which patients should get what at what time. You know, secondly, I think kind of as a segue, you know, what kind of trials are coming or open right now that uh, the membership might want to focus on for uterine cancers? In the advanced endometrial cancer space, we have a trial for patients with mismetropair deficient endometrial cancer uh, who are getting randomized to nivolumab, ipilimumab as compared to nevo. And I think that's really an important study for our endometrial cancer uh, sites to focus on enrolling because we really want uh, the answer to that question. And I think we, in the, in the earlier stage setting, we have trials that are are, we're excited to see the readout on them um, that are molecularly driven. So the GYO2O study was a patient, a study for patients with high intermediate risk endometrial cancer 
who um, were randomized to with and without pembrolizumab. And so that study completed enrollment and we're excited to see the results of that one. Um, and then we have another generation of studies coming up through the pipeline that work to further refine outcomes for patients that have molecular subtypes of treatment. So the CCTG uh, collaboration uh, is looking to refine adjuvant therapy for patients with poly-mutated tumors where they get de-escalated uh, and patients that have uh, no specific molecular profile where their treatment is also uh, tailored based on that. So those are one study that completed and we're waiting for the results and one study that we're looking forward to being able to enroll too soon. And what advice might you have for various centers that are considering opening some of the trials that are available for patients with uterine cancer? What might be some advice for maybe some trials that expect to be open for a while so that if they do feel like, you know, maybe it takes a minute to get things through their processes locally, that they would have a chance of getting, you know, more than maybe just one or two patients enrolled. I think most of our studies through the Corpus Committee are large enough studies that we really expect that people will have an opportunity by the time they open them to enroll on them. So, you know, we have pretty large studies overall. So I think anything that comes through the pipeline that looks like that you expect to have patients that meet that criteria would really encourage people to just go ahead, get them open. And any tips or tricks for efficiency with screening and enrollment, be at your own center or from what you've talked amongst with other committee members? I, I think the molecular testing part of endometrial cancer treatment is, you know, something that all sites are evolving, I think, in their practice. You know, I think a lot of people have been doing mismatch repair deficiency for a long time, but figuring out whether you're going to be doing pulley sequencing and, and how that's going to play out, it's really becoming increasingly standard and increasingly part of enrolling on those studies. So I I think, you know, working through that process with your path department is one thing that's that's helpful to encourage the process. That's a great tip. Uh, I think it is true that many centers are trying to figure out how they're going to, you know, get this molecular information for their patients. And, you know, hopefully once they've got all of that worked out, these trials will start to have answers. So they'll know, you know, what to do for patients, even off trial. What would you say if you have any tips for centers that are trying to increase their minority patient enrollment? Yeah, I I think, you know, that's so important and something that we're thinking about a lot uh, at MD Anderson too. And I think, you know, first of all, just the awareness of it is really important and acknowledging in meetings that it's something that prioritizing for every site is important. I think representation across the spectrum. So making sure that your staff resemble your patients and helping people to connect, I think is, is really an impactful thing to do. And then tapping into resources and processes that your institution may be going through to work through that exact thing. I know we discovered that some of our departments at MD Anderson had programs that, you know, we weren't aware of and working on implementing them in our own sections has really helped uh, us to expand our enrollment. I mean, that's a great point. Sometimes you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You just need to know that the wheel is working somewhere else and borrow it. So if that's a great point. And then um, lastly, just as, a, as an aside, there's a lot of interest from new investigators in getting involved in the NRG. And do you have any thoughts for those folks who might, you know, be trying to cross the threshold into getting involved with NRG? I think there's lots of great opportunities and there's a lot of effort to incorporate new investigators and to, to bring in different voices. So I think if people are interested, if you're from a committee standpoint, there's uh, an application that's annual. So keeping that on people's radar, absolutely apply and reach out to the committee um, leads of the committees that you're interested in working with. In terms of submitting concepts, you know, I think we are anxious to hear new ideas. And so if somebody has a 
concept idea, reach out to the committee heads and start kind of working through that process of what your concept is and figuring out where the space is. Um, and then just, you know, being present at the meetings and meeting people and talking to them. I think the opportunities uh, evolve the more, the more we get out there and, and uh, talk to each other. That's a great point. That networking connection is hard to replace. It certainly will take you far. Um, so thank you. Those are fantastic answers. Dr. Brown, I had some questions for you um, just related to some of the you know trial highlights from rare tumors. So anything that you think the membership should specifically know about results or um, you know perhaps maybe anything practice changing that came out of rare tumor committee this year? The f- most amazing things about NRG Oncology is the cooperative group strategy to study rare tumors. And it's really one of the only ways that we have to take something that affects relatively small proportion of people and really make some headway. It takes a community to study that. So yes, we have some really interesting, interesting things. First, I think, you know, we closed out GOG 264, which was paclitaxel and carboplatin versus bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin in upfront and recurrent chemo-naive patients with stromal tumors. So basically our granulosa cell tumor patients. And uh, interestingly, uh, this did not show a difference between the two groups. And that's that's important, right? Because that allows us to move forward with, with paclitaxel and carboplatin essentially as the new upfront regimen for patients with stromal tumors. So that's good. That's coming out. That's um, one of the new papers. We also approved a concept for development in low-grade serous ovarian carcinoma that looks at gerodestrant with or without abemocyclib. And that is an interesting combination. I think we have a lot of excitement around low-grade serous carcinoma because we are making headway into this. And that brings up, you know, Dr. Fader's trial, which is also highlighted in the ovarian uh, committee. So basically looking at the addition of letrozole to paclitaxel and carboplatin uh, versus letrozole alone. And and I think that that's going to really potentially change the, the way that we treat patients with low-grade serous carcinomas. A lot of us who see these patients with low-grade are excited to see the results and to have these opportunities because counseling them is very challenging right now. So um, I think I think the membership would agree they're excited to see this, um, you know, be something that has more focus. Any absolutely. other? Oh, sorry. Um, any other no, uh, trials in your disease site that you'd like um, the membership to be aware of or trying to enroll upon? Sure. I think um, there's one that is done in conjunction with GOG Partners that I think everybody should know about because it is really impactful. And that's the Bouquet trial. So this is GOG 3051. Uh, the Bouquet trial is uh, is basically looking at every single rare epithelial ovarian cancer. So anybody who's not high-grade serous has an arm on this trial, uh, which is pretty amazing, actually. So this is stratified by molecular Profiling. So basically, you take your patient with a rare epithelial, now not stromal, not germ cell, but rare epithelial tumor, um, even patients say with clear cell or with mucinous or even, you know, small cell uh, hypercalcemic type, uh, very rare tumors, Brenner tumors. Um, and those patients have an arm on this study where they can have molecularly targeted treatment. So it's a really interesting way to study these tumors, sort of using that platform mechanism to to develop targeted therapy in rare tumors, which I think is the wave of the future. There are 17 sites open nationally and even internationally. And I think that anything we can do to increase accrual on this trial would be great. 
the arms flip in and out. So, you know, when one arm fills, other arms become active. And are you looking for more sites to open this study? Are the centers have already all been selected? We're not looking at that right now. We need to accrue to the centers that we have first, and then potentially proof of concept, we may be able to open more, but we need to, to really demonstrate success in the centers where we've started first. Sure. Makes sense. And, you know, along the lines of centers opening trials, you know, perhaps maybe specifically for rare tumor, where, as you point out, they might not always have a ton of patients who might qualify. Do you have any advice, you know, for trials that might be open right now that they could choose from that you expect, you know, for them to be open for a while longer? Right. Absolutely. I think, you know, low-grade serous is always a good area because it's rare, but not too rare, right? So we all have those patients and, and they need, you know, they need options. So I think that's a good place sort of to start. You know, this was a topic of conversation, you know, when we all came together in the GYN Cancer Committee as well, just that the NRG is here to support our individual sites so that if, you know, the IRB or the institution sort of gives some pushback in terms of being able to keep trials open, the NRG is here for us and our individual institutions to provide support and underscore the importance of these cooperative group trials. And even in you know rare trials, rare tumor types that don't accrue a huge number of patients per trial, you know, sometimes it helps to have that letter addressed to the IRB from the NRG oncology group. So so keep an eye out for that coming your way as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I will say locally, the experience here at our, our own institution, we get these emails, you haven't put anybody on this trial in a while, and we have to explain that's, well, we wouldn't expect to put people on all the time, but we're glad to have the opportunity when patients with a more rare pathology presents. What about any thoughts from your committee about increasing the enrollment of minority patients on study? Absolutely. You know, I think we discussed this and it's always important to make sure that our trial populations reflect the entire population. And that's, of course, why it's so important to have upper underrepresented underrepresented groups enroll in our trials. And then lastly, for any new investigators or folks who are maybe just now kind of getting interested in NRG, do you have any advice for how they might be able to navigate the system, perhaps submit a concept, et cetera? Absolutely. I think, you know, the energy and certainly rare tumor, we're, we're very open to participation. We have a couple of sort of new strategies. I would say, number one, Come to the meetings, come to the groups, talk to the people. We are all interested in mentorship and bringing really good ideas to fruition. To that end, you know, we started having working groups within the rare tumor group. So basically, we now have these almost like silos for stromal, a silo for clear cell, a silo for low grade, where we bring together preclinical people. So folks who run a lab along with our clinical trialists in order to really try and thoughtfully design trials that have the sort of the most scientific backing. So I think if somebody has an, an interest in a certain type of rare tumor, there's certainly opportunity to get involved that way. Also, we have a summer symposium coming the day that energy starts in the summer, and that's going to be on rare tumors. I think it's a great way to learn and also to sort of get involved. I would also be remiss if I didn't bring up the Bridges program so Bridges is a partnership with SGO where young investigators can get involved and NRG and GOG have new investigators and scholars. I should say that the group is very supportive of people who are learning and who want to get involved. And so apply for that GOG Scholars Fund, apply to be a GOG new investigator. Everybody's supportive of new investigators getting involved. 
Wonderful. Thank you for highlighting some of those those programs, both within the NRG and the GOG, but broader within the SGO. These are all fantastic opportunities. Again, thank you everyone for your time. And we appreciate all your insight into the trials landscape moving forward and look forward to the results of everybody's upcoming studies. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really been exciting and it's just great to you know talk with you and also with everybody else here about all the exciting developments from the energy meeting. And again, I echo Dr. Liu. Thank you very much for spending the time talking with us about the Volvar Cervix Committee and looking forward to more conversations. Well, thank you so much for inviting us to talk. We're really excited to see what's next around the corner um, with the energy and partnership with SGO. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to talk with everybody today and uh, excited for the future. Thank you again to our four disease sites for joining us for this podcast of the highlights and updates from Winter NRG. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on the go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.